This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by the Art of Manliness store. Right now, we've got a huge t-shirt sale going on. All t-shirts are 40% off at the Art of Manliness store. So usually t-shirts go for $21.99. At 40% off, they're going for $13.20. And podcast listeners, you can get another 10% off by using code AOMPODCAST at checkout. So go check it out, store.artofmanliness.com. All your purchases in the Art of Manliness store help support the Art of Manliness podcast, as well as the content we produce on artofmanliness.com. Thank you. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Trust certainly makes life easier when it exists. Instead of having to craft complicated contracts for a business deal, a simple handshake will do. And instead of surveilling your spouse like the NSA, you just take them at their word. But trust, it seems, is short is in short supply these days. We're afraid of trusting people, and we have a hard time getting people to trust us. How can you establish trust in even the most toxic environments? Well, my guest today thinks he has the answer to that question. His name is Robin Dreek, and he spent his career working in a field where trust is hard to get, but important to have, doing counterintelligence for the FBI. Robin's recently published a book sharing how he's been able to gain the trust of people who aren't very keen on trusting others. It's called The Code of Trust. And today on the show, Robin shares the five rules of building trust with anyone, no matter how suspicious they are of you. While these rules may seem like they're an invitation to become a human doormat, Robin explains why that's not the case and how they actually make you more influential. Whether you're working with spies like Robin or just want to build more trust in your office, you're going to find plenty of interesting and actionable advice in this podcast. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is trust. Robin Dreek, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it and uh, taking the time to chat. So you just put out a book called The Code of Trust. But I think to appreciate what you're writing here, with the ideas you're putting out in The Code of Trust, we need to know about your background because you work in an industry, or you have worked in an industry where there's not a lot of trust. Can you tell folks a little bit about your background? Sure. The uh Industry where there's not a lot of trust. It's an interesting statement too. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Um, so yeah, my background, it's uh, really simple. I'm a Naval Academy graduate. Um, went in the Marine Corps afterwards. After the Marine Corps, I came in the FBI. So I've been in with the FBI over 20 years. And specifically inside the FBI, I work counterintelligence and uh, ran our behavioral analysis program. And it's interesting because it's when you work in the world of counterintelligence and spies and counter spies or counter proliferation or whatever it is, you know, you think of it more as a, a criminal matter, I guess, a lot of times. But in reality, it's not because you, we deal with human beings on a day to day basis. And we all do in every walk of life that we are in and every profession. And in my line of work, there's very, very little remuneration I can give someone for cooperation or wanting to, you know, put our country's well-being ahead of their own sometimes, except a, a relationship. And people aren't going to generally do that without some semblance of trust, because I generally, 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm not dealing with criminals that have committed crimes. And so there's really no reason why they should want to talk to me. So if you can't make it about them and inspire trust, you're not going to get very far. And when you first started in counterintelligence, what was your approach? Like, Did it take you a while to figure out that I need to make it about them and to get them to trust me in order then for them to work with you. Or did you take a different approach? That was really the approach. It was, it's, you know, it's funny, the book, you know, the code of trust, it's about uh, inspiring trust, but ultimately it came down to leadership. What I learned in the Marine Corps um, about leadership, because again, I'm not a natural born leader. I, I'm really kind of a natural born self-centered jerk most of the time, but that, that approach of that type A hard charger 
might work fine for you to a limited degree if you have a title or a position or a rank or a billet or, or something that someone has to listen to. But what I found out very rapidly when when you come and work in my line of work, you know, it's a very flat organization. It's a very flat uh, hierarchy and structure with people you're talking to. Matter of fact, most of the people that I interacted with are twice as old as I was, four times as smart at least. And, you know, they didn't care about title and position. They cared about how you treated them. And luckily for me, I, I did have some people that I, I that are surrounded with that were the real Jedi masters of human interpersonal skills that actually had the art form down that took me an awareness. You know, I definitely had self-awareness about what I lacked, but a lot of times maybe a little more challenging to figure out what it is I had to add. So to understand how important trust is, let's look at examples of where there's where trust does not exist. Um, any examples of organizations or businesses that you've worked with or even countries where there was hardly any trust? What's that like? Well, we see it all over the world right now. You know, I've written about it a few times since too. you know, trust in government, um, trust in politicians trust in uh, organizations, trust in a product. I mean, there's lots of examples of mistrust. And it's really because uh, there's some core elements that are really lacking in a lot of uh, communication that human beings have right now. You know, human beings, you know, range in tribal by nature. You know, we lived and survived in tribes of 40, 50, 60, I mean, thousands of years ago. And in order to survive in a tribe, you actually had to have trust. Otherwise, you'd be left for dead. And what human beings are at the genetic and biological level are seeking is a sense of affiliation and a sense of being valued. And there are very clear things that you can actually include in the language that you use when you're communicating with someone to demonstrate value and demonstrate affiliation because that tells our brains that it's good for us. And when you cascade on top our genetics and our biology on top of good societal norms and uh, humanistic ways to deal with people, it really becomes very easy. And those four things are really simple. You have to seek people's thoughts and opinions. Yeah, how often do you hear people in politics or in government or in a line of work in an industry seeking the thoughts and opinions of those people they wish to interact with? Because when you're seeking thoughts and opinions, you're saying, hey, I value what you say. Next, you have to talk in terms of their priorities, their needs, wants, dreams, aspirations, personal, professional, long-term, and short-term. Because here's another guarantee. If I'm not talking in terms of what's important to you and what you deem is prosperous for you, you're not going to listen because why would you? Third, you have to validate them. And validation, it's it's not simple flattery, which I don't really subscribe to. Validation is a seeking to understand the human being you're interacting with um, at the core level of how it is they see the world through their personal optic. And you do it non-judgmentally. And, and fourth, you want to empower them with choice. Again, we don't give people choices unless we value who they are and can affiliate with them in some way. So very rarely in a lot of things that we're seeing these days are people doing at least one of those four things in everything that we're saying and doing. And why is that? I mean, why has establishing trust become so hard in our modern world? You know, it's it's fascinating. I think we see this a lot with insecure people at work or, or people that are become annoying at work. Again, let's go back to ancient tribal man. We want to feel affiliated and we want to feel part of a collective because feeling part of a collective means we'll survive. And when any individual or group singles out another group, either positively or negatively, what happens is is that everyone else feels disconnected and they feel like they have to try to convince someone to accept them for who they are. And so when, when people are feeling ostracized and not included, people are going to start battling. And when you start battling, shields are up, no information is flowing, and people start standing their ground and thinking they have to you know, fight for what is right from their perspective. 
while at the same time they're not doing anything because the one thing I, I, I never even try to do anymore is I never try to convince anyone because I really can't. I think in terms of how can I inspire them to want to listen to me because that convincing aspect is about me and what I think. If I'm thinking in terms of inspiring, it's about them. So why aren't people doing it more these days? Because people are battling to feel included more so than I think they've done in a long time. Which is weird because, you know, supposedly the internet, all this technology allows us to communicate, it's supposed to connect us more, but it, it sounds like it's made it harder to establish trust. Well, what's happened is with the anonymity of being behind, you know, a screen or a Twitter or, or a Facebook posting or LinkedIn posting, with that anonymity comes this unbridled desire to give your thoughts and opinions and judge others. And as soon as you start judging someone, that's when the shields go up and that's when divisiveness starts. Instead of rather trying to understand how other people see the world through their optic. I mean, I mean, granted, you know, you look at my background, you know, Naval Academy, Marine Corps, FBI, it can sound like, like I said before, a pretty hard charging, judgmental uh, individual. Well, do this for over 20 years. I can't judge anyone. You know, I've had a, a career in a lifetime of knowing that if I start judging, you know, someone as being right or wrong or less or more or morally corrupt or not, I guarantee you that people's shields are going to go up and there's no not going to be any communication flow because ultimately all I'm ever trying to do is inspire someone to want to collaborate, want to work on mutual beneficial priorities. Um, and if you start judging in any way, half, you know, shields are up, no information's flowing. And that's what's happening in the digital world. But I mean, and the good side though, is it's very easy to communicate with much more people in the digital world because you can use these strategies to make it all about them. But people just have this incessant need to want to correct others. Right. And it, the, the big takeaway I got from the book, you know, the benefit of trust is that it just makes life easier, right? Whether it's business, your personal life, you know, imagine a world where, you know, you can just transact on a handshake. That's much more efficient than drawing up these huge, complicated contracts because you don't trust the guy that you're in a partnership with. Absolutely, Brett. The uh, the thing that's really pretty amazing to me and what's happened since the years I've developed this is that life has become exceedingly calm and exceedingly prosperous. And here's why. Years ago, you know, I, I self-published a first little book on rapport. And the whole purpose of rapport was, you know, to try to elicit some information or something for an interview. And then I started realizing, well, the next step to rapport is really trust. And, you know, when you have trust, you have collaboration, you have mutually beneficial priorities that you're working on together. And what I really realized is the more I focused on trust, I started having relationships, deep, meaningful relationships, relationships where people are mutually vested in each other's prosperity and vested without expectation of reciprocity. So that is truly the unconditional giving that you can offer. And what happens is, is when you start creating a network of trust through relationships, that's when the majesty of, of calmness happens and prosperity. I mean, it's really been pretty amazing. You know, I said to my son uh, a couple of days ago, he recently got into exactly where he wanted to go to college on a very early decision. And the first thing we did is we sat down and said, hey, you had all these skills that allowed you to do that. But the first thing we're going to do is we're gonna, let's talk about the relationships that was able to facilitate exactly what you wanted to accomplish. Because as I've seen throughout my life and he saw throughout his, 
you can have all the talents in the world, but talent and all these skills without relationships is completely useless. All right, let's walk through the code a bit here. And you've already laid out some of the parts already, but let's get very explicit here. The first one is suspend your ego. What does that look like when you are trying to establish trust with somebody? Yeah, suspend your ego. It's the uh, it's really one of the bedrocks of facilitating the code of trust. I, I often teach and talk about how the code is flawless. It is completely unconditionally flawless. The one thing that will cause it to fail is you, your ego, and your vanity. And what I mean by that is anytime things come about yourself, your own priorities, things that you're trying to accomplish through someone else, but still become self-centered, that's when your ego gets in the way. Because if you're not dealing with someone that's unconditional and offer new resources, which generally people aren't, there's no reason why they would want to cooperate you. Our ego and our vanity really get in the way of our mouth and the things we say, um, where we become judgmental, where we have this need to correct other people, argue how they see the world through their particular experiences. And that's what we really get in the way. Right. And, but it could be very subtle too. You might not think you're being egotistical, but like, you know, you, the way you approach the person you're coming from your frame point. Yeah, absolutely. Matter of fact, I used to work with someone. I, I worked with some amazing people. One of them in the book, I call him Jesse Thorne. Um, real life, his name is John. Protect the names of the innocent. But uh, he he was the master of interpersonal communication. One of the most down-to-earth, humility-driven individuals that was the most successful person I've ever saw in my line of work. And, like, and also on my same squad, I had someone with the same amount of time that was also very, very good investigator, fantastic, but he didn't have the ability to develop the same sorts of relationships. And the reason was he had some very stringent uh, ethics, morals, and religious beliefs that he didn't necessarily state, but non-verbally. He was very judgmental of people that didn't believe what he believed. And so that started getting creeping in there. I call it incongruence. We've all experienced this incongruence between that's what we say. A lot of times, you know, you get these salespeople, they can say all the right things, but you still get that creepy salesman effect. Well, that's because emotionally, they're not actually thinking to benefit you. They're thinking to benefit themselves. And so that's what happens in a lot of these things. That comes across non-verbally. So having congruence between that, what you're saying and that, what you're feeling about the other individual and specifically being non-judgmental is really key. Right. Well, that leads us to the next step. It's be non-judgmental. And the third one is validate, which are very similar. Okay. What do you mean by, because I think we all understand be non-judgmental and validate. What do you mean by validate? Validate is, is seeking to understand that human being that's in front of you. Again, you have to combine it with non-judgmental because you can seek to understand someone, but if you're doing so, um, scorning them or not believing in what they're saying or standing in judgment of it, you, there's not going to be any kind of trust or shields down where information is exchanging and flowing. So validation is merely seeking to understand. So that really the, the key and the, the reason to do this is sometimes you're going to deal with people that you feel intolerant of, that you are don't like being around, that annoy you whether it's personal or professional. And those are the people that you actually have to validate the most, meaning that you have to seek to understand them. Because what happens is when you seek to understand and you validate, then tolerance ensues. And when you have tolerance, then you start having that congruence again between that's what you're saying and that what you're feeling towards the individual. I mean, there's people in lives that can you know, bug the living heck out of us, whether it's at work or home. And the first thing I do is I seek to understand, well, why is it their behavior is bothering me? And a lot of times it's because of experiences they had growing up, experiences they've had in the workplace. And so they're feeling insecure about something. And so the first thing I try to discover is or validate is what are they insecure about? So I can make them feel more secure about it when dealing with me. Well, and how do you do that without 
you know, approving of their behavior? Because I'm sure this happened to you in counterintelligence. You probably were working with people who were possibly thinking about doing some sort of treasonous act. So, you know, you want to be non-judgmental and validate, but at the same time, like say, that's actually not a good thing that you're thinking about doing. So how do you, how do you balance, how do you deal with that? Yeah. I got a deep, dark story on a espionage side. I like to use sometimes, but a little too deep and dark for this, but it really comes down to the fact that what I got to focus on my end goal. You know, my, if my end goal is to protect national security and my end goal is to, you know, then if you're in the business world, sell a service or a product and you are the person that I need to interact with, then I need to communicate with you in a way that's going to inspire you to want to. And if I start judging you, then you're not going to want to. So you're all, so you're automatically undermining what it is that you set out to want to do. And that's what makes this leadership. You know, leaders are the ones that are setting the goals and objectives about interacting with other human beings. And now strong, inspirational leadership makes it about the other person. Leaders set the goal, and then they take actions that's going to inspire someone to want to come along on the ride with them and make it beneficial for them ahead of you. And if you start, you know, judging others and not validating them, then I guarantee you they're not going to do it. You know, the great thing I love about this, too, is human behavior becomes extremely predictable. If I take the time to understand what your priorities are, like I said before, your needs, wants, dreams and aspirations, personal, professional, long term and short term. If I understand how you define prosperity and what's in your best interests and I now offer you resources for you to achieve all those things, I know you're going to do it. I guarantee you're going to do it. Why wouldn't you? So that's what this is all about, is understanding those things about other people non-judgmentally, and then offering resources for them to achieve it. And now, now, if for some reason you feel so strongly that you're going to stand in judgment of them, I'm not saying that's right or wrong either. I can just guarantee you, you're not going to have a productive interaction. So you should just break contact before you even start. Gotcha. So uh, the fourth part of the code is honor reason. Uh, what do you mean by that? Honor reason is kind of what we've already been talking about. These things all kind of swirl together uh, congruently. On a reason is making sure, especially as a leader, whether it's leadership where you're trying to sell, whether you're trying to, you know, lead on a battlefield, counterintelligence in your household with your teenagers. What leaders are very, very good, at least the inspirational leaders are, they're very good at maintaining cognitive thought processes during the interaction. And so the the thing I love about the code, the code is very empathetic. In other words, I care very deeply about what other people are doing. Because if you're finding out their context of the world, you're validating them, you're seeking to understand those priorities, you're going to start to understand them and empathy is created. Now, what honor reason is doing is, is ensuring that that feeling I have towards your success, that I don't get emotionally attached to your decisions, because ultimately they are your decisions and how you want to interact. My job is to help you understand your cause and effect of where it is you are and where it is you're going. And so for me, honoring reason is maintaining an objective third-party analysis for you so I can be a resource for you moving forward. I, I have these three anchors that I do that maintain my cognitive reason. Um, one, I make sure that I have happy, happy, healthy relationships. So everything I say or I'm doing is going to make sure that I have happy, healthy, or professional relationships. That I have open, honest communication with transparency because you cannot have healthy relationships without that. And third is I'm an available resource for the prosperity of others without expectation or reciprocity. Because making yourself that available resource with no expectation of reciprocity is what leaders do. Leaders don't keep a scorecard. When I honor those three things, that keeps me very uh, rational, honoring reason. But, but how do you maintain that um, that rational sort of cool detachment in the heat of the moment? Because 
it's easy to get caught up with your emotions. Yeah. So you got to build some muscle memory, as I call it. The uh, You have to first recognize in yourself what you do when you get emotionally hijacked, when you have start having brain creep of either stress, anxiety, resentment, anger, frustration, all these thought processes that enter the brain, they start the emotional hijacking process where cognitive thought starts going out the door. So first, recognizing when you're hitting that emotional state and then immediately going to the code of trust. In other words, I, I hit it all the time. I mean, I'm a type A. Type A's love to fix a problem with a baseball bat half the time. And uh, what happens is as soon as I get that emotional that hits in there, I recognize it rapidly and I then immediately go to what's my goal. And is what I'm about to say or doing going to help or hinder what I'm actually trying to accomplish? So in other words, I recognize emotional hijacking rapidly and I then shift into cognitive mode. And it, it takes practice. There's no doubt. I mean, when I first started realizing this, I'd slip into this emotional hijacking kind of gradually and not realizing it. But as soon as you start realizing it, go right to the code of trust because it maintains that great cognitive thought process. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. All right, I'm always trying to push the boundaries of what I know, stay challenged. I know it's the same for many of you listening. That's why I want you to check out the huge video library from the Great Courses Plus. You can learn everything about anything that interests you. They've got thousands of courses there taught by some of the top professors and experts in their fields. They've got things on history, science, health and fitness, how to write better, philosophy, you name it, they've got it. One course I've been listening to lately is called Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking. It's going to show you how you think poorly that leads to bad decisions. And so you're going to have sections and lectures on logic and logical fallacies, heuristics and cognitive biases that lead us astray and how to avoid those and how to uh, think about pseudoscience and how to not be tricked by pseudoscience. A lot of great stuff. So go check it out. Your Deceptive Mind and AOM Podcast listeners got a special offer for you. If you want to try this out for free for a full month, just go to my special URL. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. You'll have access to all of their courses, video lectures for free for one month. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness manliness. One more time, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. Check it out today. All right. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, one I recommend is The Art of Charm. The host there, Jordan Harbinger, brings on guests from a wide variety of fields, and he does such a great job getting, you know, ex extracting useful information from these folks. And Jordan, one guy you had on recently was a guy named R. Douglas Fields, who wrote a book called Why We Snap. It's about rage. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this guy. Yeah, this is, this guy was funny, man. He talked about the, what, the rage circuit does evolutionarily speaking right so what it does why we have it why ordinary people sometimes snap and this isn't like oh i my dad snapped at me when i came home late this is like how normal people can just suddenly react violently when triggered by rage how we can control our urge to snap when rage might overtake us understanding the nine triggers of rage. And some of these you'd think like, okay, I, I got this, you know, it's like walking in on your wife or something like that. Like that's one of them. But there are other ones that are more surprising that I think are, are interesting. And he gives a little mnemonic that'll help us identify when rage intrudes so we can get a rational handle on it preemptively. All right. So you guys can find that at artofcharm.com. Also search for Art of Charm on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, where else you listen to podcasts. Now back to the show. So the final step of the code of trust is be generous. Uh, what does that look like as far as gaining trust? Pretty much combined with uh, what I said before, my three anchors and the third anchor being make yourself an available resource for the prosperity of others without that expectation of reciprocity. In other words, um, be generous. Be generous with your time. Uh, be generous with the resources if you have them to offer. 
And when you do, and when you're generous with both time and resources without that expectation, in other words, if you have an expectation, it makes it about you. That's the only reason you're doing it. But if you can actually let go of it with no expectation of return on it, that's when people are actually become inspired to want to reciprocate. But you can't hold on to that because then it all becomes about you and the whole thing gets undermined by your own ego and vanity. So, I mean, I like the way this sounds in theory, but I think a lot of people are probably listening to this and thinking, well, this is like a formula for getting, you know, becoming a doormat, right? Because you're just making it about the other person. You're being generous, um, you know, giving them your trust to them without them earning their trust. I mean, so... Are you going to get walked over um, following the code of trust or does it play out in the long run in your favor? It has never happened yet where I've been a doormat and here's why. Yes, absolutely. This is a, this can be a very humanistic, altruistic way about dealing with people. But never once did I say be kind, be nice, be soft. No, it's about rational thought. And the first step in the rational thought we're talking about, I said it earlier, is what's your goal? In other words, if you – if People that are doormats, either they don't set a goal at the beginning of an interaction or relationship and or they set it and they become wishy-washy on maintaining it. Um, there hasn't been any instance yet where I've actually had to compromise my original goal or whether I had to let go of it or even not have one to begin with. I'm always a lot, I have a lot of clarity on what it is, why I do what I do. And it focuses on the ends goals for me. As I said, I, I gave you my three ends goals already. The happy, healthy, professional relationships, open, honest communication, available resources for prosperity of others with expectation reciprocity. Under there, I have a few others. Um, maintain security for myself, my community, my country. That's another end goal. And so if I have these milestones along the way, I become very flexible in how to execute those milestones so they can maintain the mission statement. In a lot of companies, we have mission statements, and I also have mission statements with my own family. You know, again, healthy, professional, healthy, happy relationships with my own kids and open honest communication and available resource for healthy relationships in their lives. The only way to do that is to make sure that I'm talking in terms of their priorities, empowering them, doing all these things. So in other words, I'm always extremely clear on the direction that I'm moving with the mission that I'm trying to achieve. So I've never had to be a doormat. Now, the thing that makes this non-manipulative is one, manipulation is nothing but control with an attempt of subterfuge and deception. Well, how does this under, how does the code deal with that? Well, there's no deception whatsoever it's because the third anchor again is open honest communication with transparency. I never try to deceive. I don't use pretext calls. I don't, I am straightforward, 100% honest because I'd rather have one or two people give me 120% of their effort and time together, then 10 or 20 people give me 5% and they don't want to talk to you tomorrow. It comes down to branding. Right. So an important part of this is knowing your goals. And then a part of that is aligning your goals with the other person. Absolutely. So the, the trick is how do you figure out what the other person's goal is? Because sometimes they might say it's one thing, but it might actually be another thing. That's it's a great question. And you're absolutely right in this, you know, and this is what goes back then to the fail. Again, the, the code to me is majestic and fail safe because the fail safe for that is if you've told me what your priorities are and your goals are, and I've offered you resources for achieving them. And for some reason, you're not doing that and you're not executing. Again, it's on your tempo and timeline, because again, if you're trying to manipulate, you're on your own timeline. If you're trying to inspire, it's about their timeline. But if they're not taking action, they're not executing and things start becoming incongruent. Well, what are they not doing? They're not being open and honest with you. 
And that means if they're not being open honest with you, it's not a healthy relationship. So now you have to make a choice. So again, the fail safe here is, is if it's not being effective because they're not taking advantage of what you're offering in terms of their prosperity, then there's something else going on. It's not you, it's them. So another uh, phrase you repeated throughout the book, and you even said it a few times already, is you never argue context uh, with somebody. What do you mean by that? People have a different point of view of everything. I mean, just one of the things we're talking about at the beginning here today was trust. One reason why people don't trust is because people are arguing context, you know, whether it's the right side or left side of politics, whether it's a, a performance of a certain product or a certain service, um, whether someone views their own children in a certain way or a different way. Um, context is how we, each of us has developed our own sense of self and our own sense of how we see the world around us. So our, our, our prefrontal lobe is not fully formed till around roughly 24, 25-ish. And so the things we experience between the first formative years of our lives, a lot of times between the ages of 8 and 19, forms how we see the world for the rest of our life. Then you put on top of that our individual demographic, our gender, our ethnicity, are all these different things that make up who we are gives us our vision of how we see the world. I mean, I could hold up a product or a, or or a situation in a room with five people, and I'm going to have five different things that people see when they see that, and that's context. If you want to inspire trust, do not argue context. It, again, if it doesn't cost you anything legally, because all you're doing when you challenge someone on how they see the world is you're, I guarantee you their shields are going up and no information that you want to talk about is going in. All right. So you never say, you know, like if someone says, I feel this way, you say, well, you're wrong. Absolutely. Again, you can say what you want because I, I, I believe there's no right or wrong, just cause and effect. So say someone says something that you don't particularly agree with. The natural response is exactly what you said, saying something like, well, I don't agree with that. Here's what I think. Well, what's your actually end goal here? Well, if your end goal is to have them actually listen to what you think, you can't convince them because now you just tried and failed. How can you inspire them to want to listen to you? So the first thing I do is I seek to understand. So I validate. I say, wow, I never heard it quite put that way before. Help me understand. How did you come up with that? So I'm seeking thoughts and opinions. Their brain's rewarding them, and they're sharing their thoughts and opinions, and I'm gaining their context. Now, if I want them to listen to what I think, the next thing I say is, wow, that was really interesting. I, again, thank you for sharing. I haven't heard it that way before. I'm curious. What do you think about this? Again, I'm now seeking their thoughts and opinions about what it is I wanted them to listen to to begin with. I guarantee you they're going to contemplate it, they're going to ruminate it, and they're going to give you thoughts and opinions. If you had just said what you think and told them what you, that you didn't believe in what they said, they're not going to listen to a word you said. Again, that power of asking those thoughts and opinions where you're demonstrating affiliation, you're demonstrating value, they're going to listen to it. It's, it's the same thing as you know people say one of the things you want to do with people is plant the seed for them to think about. Well, if you want to plant seeds with people, you don't tell them what you think. Ask them what they think. Right. And another uh, one of my favorite maxims you repeated throughout the book on, on gaining trust was don't follow the golden rule, follow the platinum rule. Right. Yeah. I, I wish I could claim total credit for that one. Uh, the great book called The Platinum Rule by Tony Alessandra uh, a number of years ago when I first started getting into all the behavioral stuff. Um it's really pretty simple. The golden rule, it's a, it's a beautiful intention and it's I'm not arguing at all. The golden rule says treat people as it has, as how you want to be treated. But what the platinum rule is saying is what I'm talking about in the code of trust is treat people how they want to be treated. In other words, a lot of times I'm going to treat you – matter of fact, that's the problem – big reason why I had some some fantastic humbling moments in my life. I treated you exactly how the type A wants to be treated, but that's not how they want to be. So shields up and uh, no interaction. Meanwhile, if I took time to understand how you want to be treated, how you prefer to be communicated with, what your priorities are, and I talked in terms of them, 
that's the platinum rule. Gotcha. And so, the, you know, this, this means, okay, if, even if you're type A person and you're dealing with someone a little more laid back, you want to take a more laid back approach. But if you're a more laid back person interacting with a type A hard charging guy, you want probably want to take that approach as well. Absolutely. A lot of times, you know, we see this in email, emails a lot of times too, or even in, you know, a quick text or something where you have someone that's extremely people oriented and people oriented people are, they do make up the majority of people on the planet. And they're, these are the individuals that like anecdotes, they like stories, they like doing things with a lot of pronouns and usage uh, and, and generally goes in the world of a lot of words. And so one of the challenges here, if you're dealing with someone task-oriented like that, they just want just the facts, man. Cut to the chase, tell me what you want, and I'm in and out. And so when you have a, a, a severe divergence there, um, it can be a real off-putting to each side. You know, but just remember, no one's – People very rarely are trying to do something to you. They're just being who they are. Right. Oftentimes it's not about you. It's usually about them. It's never about you. Very rarely it's is never. it about you. You just happen to get in the way that day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how do you apply this stuff to digital communication? Much, A lot of our communication is going online now. And as you said, one of the challenges there, there's anonymity. You're not in person, so you can't have like the facial cues and body language interaction. And the How do you establish trust online? I actually enjoy doing doing that a little bit more, believe it or not, even though I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an Xer, you know, I'm just about 49. So I'm not, you know, I'm not born of the digital age, like a lot of the millennials are, but I actually enjoy it a lot easier only because you can really strategize how to say things a little, a little easier because when, when you're having a live interaction with someone, you can't memorize what you're saying. Cause if you're memorizing things, you're not focusing on them, which is the most important thing you're thinking about yourself. I, I do think about my first line when I'm going live so I can make it about them. But after that, I have to really focus on them and you make sure I'm using language that is about them. But when in the digital age, if I'm emailing or texting or Twittering or whatever we want to do, it's very easy to go line by line with everything you're doing and making sure you're including one of those four things. Seeking those thoughts and opinions, talking in terms of priorities of others, validating them and empower them in choices. It's so easy to build one of those four things in. I mean, a simple, a simple way to just do it is, you know, here's what I want to do, uh, folks, blah, 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 if that's okay with you. In other words, if just by adding, if that's okay with you, if that's something you're, you're comfortable with, I just made it about them. Validating their time, that makes it about them. Seeking assistance, that's making it about them. You know, There's lots of little things you can do to make sure that every statement's about someone else. And writing is very easy because you can write. I and mean, we do this all the time anyway. Think about it. A lot of us, before we send an e well, hopefully we're doing it anyway. Before we send an email or, or a, a text, we think about who's it going to and – then we think about it and then we craft it a little bit and then we send it. And so that's all we're doing in this situation. We're taking it to the next level by making sure that we're doing one of those four things and everything we're doing. So this is a question that just came to mind. Um, so as you're doing this code of trust and you're interacting with a lot, you're probably interacting with dozens, maybe even hundreds of people. How do you keep track of everything, right? Like context for different people. Like, I mean, do you, what did you do as a, as a counterintelligence guy? Do you have like a dossier? Do you have like a document you go to or a database? What do you do there? I, I, again, great questions. I get asked quite a few times. It doesn't get this complicated, believe it or not. The amount of people in any individual's lives that have complete overlapping of priorities, um, it fluctuates from time to time, but there's really a handful, maybe 10, 15 most. And, and some will fade in, some will fade out as these priorities no longer overlap. But if you're honoring the code of trust, it's always a strong relationship. So they can come in and out as need be over time. And so 
that being said, they also have all these 10 or 15 people. They have their contacts. They have their relationships. They have their trusted networks. And so yours become bigger and more vast the better effect you have on those around you. It becomes what I call the hub and spoke, you know, where you're the hub and everyone else is their own hub and it, and it keeps expanding. And what I've seen is, is the more calm and healthy you can make your relationships, the people you're interacting with are starting to do the same thing because they're starting to mirror those behaviors of success. The other thing that I will add though, I learned this early in the Marine Corps was I had what was called the platoon commander's notebook. And what that was, was it was some notes you take on every, you know, I had, I had a good number of Marines that worked for me and yeah, remembering finer details about everyone's lives that they're willing to share, it could become challenging. So I just jot a few notes down on anniversaries, birthdays, significant events in their lives. um, So I could refer back to it from time to time. I mean, people do this all the time now with, you get a business card from someone, take a few notes on the back. But what you'll find is, at least what I found, is that that core network of highly trusted individuals, I've never had it really exceed anything that was unmanageable that I couldn't remember. Gotcha. That's good to know. Um, so trust is hard to gain, or is it hard to gain? Is it actually easy? Is it easy to gain, or is that? I think it's very easy to gain. I think it's easy to gain when you know how to communicate. And if you communicate in terms of the other people and not yourself, it's very easy to gain. Now, the thing that you can't force, though, is whether the other person is ready for you in their life or not. You know, if you don't have things that are interesting to them, you know, in the worries of their prosperity, or you have a personality trait that's very off-putting, then don't force it because then you're making it about you. But in general, it's pretty easy to gain. Now, the big thing here is, though, everyone has a different tempo. Some people are, are easy to let trust, you know, go. So they'll they'll trust you within the first couple of minutes of, of you just having great communication about them. Some people, they've had some life experiences that make them very skeptical or they're in a business that makes it that they generally deal with untrustworthy people. So it might take three, six, 12 months. So you just got to be flexible. Can't make it all about you. And it's, it's, but it, I found it to be pretty easy. And is maintaining that trust after you spent, you know, after you gained it, is it just a matter of just, following the code regularly? Following the code regularly is definitely critical. But people always ask me, so Robin, how exhausted do you get doing the code 24 hours a day with everyone you interact? And I said, well, I don't. You know, when when it when a, it's a new relationship that's just um, starting, when it's a relationship that, you know, you have to have a, a more challenging conversation uh, or something deviates from kind of normal interaction, then that's when I make sure I'm really exercising it well. Otherwise, you know, I, I'm, I'm just me, you know, and what happens is, is you get better and better behaviors anyway. Um, but I just, I, my, my, when I get my shields down, I get a little snarky with people because I kind of got a quick wit and a, two fast one-liners now and then. Especially, you know, outside the home, I'm probably 95% on most of the time. Inside the home, maybe 60%. <laughs> and what do you do? Uh, like, say, there, there's probably people listening to the show right now. They're in an office, a, you know, workplace where there's just no trust. It's toxic. How do you go about turning the culture around where people start trusting each other. That's not uncommon. So first of all, for anyone listening that's in that environment, don't think you're alone. It's very common, unfortunately. Um, it really depends on how the trust is was lost to begin with and and, and that, that unhealthy culture began. Um, a lot of times it's from management on high. And so a lot of times, I mean, I've worked for bosses that you know, constantly shift up goals and priorities to keep you off balance so they could feed off of your stress and anxiety. That's unhealthy. So sometimes you're not going to be able to affect the individual causing the environment, 
But if you can start mitigating the people around him, in other words, people like that don't bother me anymore because I know it's their issue, not mine. And so if I can start calming the reaction of the people around me so that there's nothing for these people to feed off of, that's one way to mitigate it. Um, another way to mitigate it is just possibly asking yourself, is this kind of environment that's healthy for me and my way of life? You know, because ultimately what we – most human beings, we're not – we're not seeking – studies came out about this a couple of years ago. I think the, the average income of the happiest people in the world was not in the millions or hundreds of thousands, about $75,000 a year, I think it was. And what it is is see, people are looking for very simple things for their own prosperity, um, healthy relationships, uh, health, diversity of activity, and food shelter and healthcare. That's about it. After that, people are seeking to be valued. And if you're in a place that you're not feeling valued, um, and sometimes we don't, you'll never feel valued by your bosses, and that's okay. If you're feeling valued by the people around you, that might be enough to hold you. Just do an assessment. Ask yourself, is this healthy for me to stay in this environment? If not, what can I do about it? And if I can't do anything about it, you know, ask yourself, why am I still here? Gotcha. Well, Robin, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about the book? That's easy. So uh, the book, The Code of Trust, you can get it anywhere. It's available everywhere. I do have a website. It's called www.peopleformula.com. Uh, all one word, People Formula. You can follow me on Twitter at R-D-R-E-E-K-E. I've been posting a bit lately, LinkedIn as well, and uh, I got a Facebook author page. So I'm pretty much all over the place. Uh, look forward to chatting with folks. Awesome. Robin Dreek, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it too. My guest there is Robin Dreek. He's the author of the book, The Code of Trust. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at peopleformula.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is trust, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, I've gotten something out of it. I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And also share the podcast with some friends. That's how most people find the podcast is just a recommendation from a friend. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.